Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pullback pause to the Nasdaq set to stabilize after a 10% sell-off. Study suspended. AstraZeneca's vaccine trials are delayed over safety concerns. And a diamond-sized disaster. Why LVMH might be skipping breakfast at Tiffany's. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. We have a truly electrifying show coming up for you this Wednesday. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi will be joining us in an exclusive interview to discuss the company's bold new push towards electric vehicle adoption for its drivers and, of course, what the future of the gig economy may indeed look like. And now, speaking of power moves too, Trevor Milton, the executive chairman of Nikola, is also coming up. The firm announcing a major investment from GM, as we discussed yesterday on the show. That sent shares up some 40% yesterday's trading session and they're up again pre-market. Now, after some high-voltage market moves too, the tech sector seems to be back on the grid as you can see there, Nasdaq futures higher this morning after plunging 10% in three days. That was the fastest move into correction territory on record for that market. Tesla also falling more than 20% in yesterday's trade. Its worst day ever as a public company. Context, though, as you can see by that chart, is key. The stock's still up almost 300% this year. There were other notable losses, too. The energy sector had its worst day in almost three months on future growth fears, I think. Reports say Saudi Arabia is now cutting prices to supplies to the United States and to Asia. And sticking with Asia, too, a quick look at the session there. All the major markets in the red. The red hot to Chinex index, jam-packed, of course, with Chinese tech startups, falling near 5% on fears that regulators could move to limit speculation as valuations heat up. Oh boy, there's lots to discuss. Let's get to it. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, when you have some of the biggest tech names contributing almost a quarter of an index like the S&P 500, when they lose ground, the aggregate stock market falls. But when I look beneath the details, people are dipping their toes here into other stocks, recovery stocks. We need to point this out at the same time. Yeah, I think you are exactly right, Julie. And what's been interesting is you're seeing some of the companies in the travel and leisure sectors that have been really hard hit due to COVID-19. They were leading when Mm. the broader market falling companies like Royal Caribbean and Norwegian, they though are down in early trading this morning because now it looks like we're going back at least for one day or at least for the open to those high tech stocks that people have been infatuated with. I've, I've dubbed them the Magnificent Seven, you know, the, the uh, top five companies in the SP 500 
you throw in uh, Tesla and Netflix as well, and you have these tech companies that investors just can't seem to get enough of. Tesla is back up in early pre-market trading. Apple is rallying once again. So I think investors are wondering, maybe we've had this correction, we've had this dip. Valuations still may not be totally reasonable, but they're more cheap now than they were a few days ago, even though they're not inexpensive by any stretch of the imagination. So you might see some of the proverbial buying on the dip finally happen. Five horsemen of the tech apocalypse for three days only, it seems, Paul. Is this the fear of missing out kicking back in? Because beyond perhaps some concerns over valuation, nothing really has changed. If you like the tech trade going forward, if you keep looking back at the Federal Reserve stimulus, it's all still there. Yeah, the Fed is not going away anytime soon. I think that Jay Powell will continue to be the market's friend. And I know this is something that we've harped on, but I don't think we can stress it enough. Tech in 2020, the tech leaders are in much better fundamental shape than they were when we had the dot-com bubble burst 20 years ago. All of those five tech giants, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and Alphabet, you could quibble with the valuations, but you cannot really take any pot shots at A, the demand for all their products and services, which is robust, and their balance sheets. A lot of them have a very nice fortress of cash and very little debt. So these are companies in healthy financial position that should be able to snap back once the economy does rebound whenever that happens. Yeah, the last six months proved we simply can't live without them. The Amazons, the Apples, the connectivity, the working from home can't live without. Paula Monica, thank you for that. Shares of AstraZeneca are lower in London after the pharmaceutical giant temporarily halted its phase three trial of a possible coronavirus vaccine. This comes after one of the volunteers had an unexplained illness. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen has all the details. Elizabeth, I have so many questions on this. It's one of the most closely scrutinized scientific sprints ever. Is this a sign that safety is being put first? It is, and that's a good Mm. thing, Julia. This is the way these trials are supposed to happen. When you vaccinate tens of thousands of people, you are going to get just by, it could be by chance, some people are going to get sick. Could it be because of the vaccine? Maybe. Could it be a coincidence and it's not because of the vaccine? Maybe. But that's why you stop down the trial and you see you try to get a get a look at what's going on. And I'll note here, Julia, that if you remember last spring, we heard so much enthusiasm from the University of Oxford, which is associated with AstraZeneca. Now they're working together. We heard so much enthusiasm about their vaccine. They said, we're going to finish first. This is why you have to have humility in vaccine trials. They are very unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen. Let us take every comment from a pharmaceutical executive saying, we're the best, we're the best. Take those with a grain of salt. Yeah, we just have to wait to see what the results of this Mm -hmm. full-scale trial look like, and uh, there's no getting around it. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Thank you. Elizabeth Cohen there. American businesses are resisting President Trump's calls to decouple from China. A new survey found that 92% of U.S. firms that operate in China intend to stay despite the trade tensions. David Culver joins us now. Interesting analysis here. They may be staying, David, but it has changed their investment priorities and their thinking. 
And it is so telling when you look at this geopolitical sphere that we're in, what some have just described as an absolute mess between the two countries and what is a deteriorating relationship between the two largest economies in the world. But Julia, you look at that survey coming out of the American Chamber of Commerce, Shanghai, 92%, the overwhelming majority of the American companies that were part of that survey, saying that they are committed to staying here within the People's Republic of China, despite what we have seen, the pandemic, the trade tensions, the trade war. And then, as you mentioned, President Trump being highly critical of China and even calling for companies to decouple. They seem to be resisting that. So what is it that is keeping them here? Well, for one, they obviously see the advantage of the consumer market and what has been a growing one at that. Demand here, certainly even in the midst of coming out of, of the outbreak lockdowns, which were brutal at times, people are spending a good amount. This revenge spending, as it's been described. The other thing that's been cited is that as they've emerged from the pandemic, no question there were cases such as Wuhan, the original epicenter of this, in which case uh, they had 76 days of really sealing off the entire city, a city larger than New York, larger than 11 million people population-wise. And what we saw when we made our visits to Wuhan were businesses, the vast majority, not able to reopen. They were really struggling. So they took that and they learned from it in other cities, such as Beijing and even in Shanghai, and they were determined to have local governments work with some of these companies so as to figure out a way to come back online, to bring back the supply chains, as well as simply open up offices, especially when you look at a financial hub like Shanghai. So that's what was cited as part of the reasoning for their commitment to staying here, but there's still struggles ahead. I mean, a quarter of those surveyed suggested that they think the U.S.-China trade tensions will go on indefinitely, Julia. And they also say they're worried about domestic competition because we've seen that growing here, mm. as well as just an overall economic slowdown. As we've seen, China has had really rapid growth in recent years. It's obviously slowed because of the pandemic, but also because they're starting to realize that they're facing more competition globally too. Yeah, there's no easy decisions here, but for now at least, it seems standing pat. David Culver, great to have your analysis on that. Thank you so much. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A massive fire has destroyed Europe's largest refugee camp. Fast-moving flames tore through the Moria camp on the Greek island of Lesbos overnight, where an estimated 13,000 people were living. That's more than six times its maximum capacity. There are no reports of injuries so far. The cause of the fire also not yet known. More than 10,000 kilometres away, dozens of fires still burning in the western United States. And with hot, dry weather in the forecast, there's no relief in sight. In California alone, wind and extreme heat are stoking the flames that have scorched nearly 900,000 hectares. The massive creek fire still completely uncontained. As Europe struggles with the surge in new coronavirus cases, the UK tightening restrictions. The government says social gatherings can include no more than six people instead of the previous 30 allowed. Official figures on Tuesday showed more than 2,400 new coronavirus cases in Britain in the previous 24 hours. All right, so to come here on First Move, Uber's electric charge. The firm promising every car on its platform will be electric by 2040. Wow. CEO Dara Khosrowshahi joins us next for an exclusive interview. Stay with us. Let's start.
Welcome back to First Move. Ride-hailing food delivery and transportation giant Uber has an ambitious new climate goal. The company pledges that all cars operating on its platform will be electric by 2040. In Europe, the US and Canada, it plans to hit that target by 2030. Over the next five years, it will invest $800 million to help drivers make the switch. There is plenty to discuss in an exclusive interview. Joining us now, Dara Kosvashahi, CEO of Uber. Dara, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for getting up so early to talk to us this morning. Happy to be here. Thank Two you. words come to mind, bold and ambitious. The, the closest comparison perhaps I could make is Microsoft, but they have nowhere near your footprint. How are you going to do this? Well, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, mm. And if you don't start today, then uh, you're losing another day to prevent climate change, which is an incredibly important issue for all of us. Uh, and we decided that we have to take a responsibility. Uh, and essentially, we're doing it by bringing Uber green, expanding the product uh, all over the world, bringing it to the U.S., uh, and using the power of the consumer to be able to make choices as far as uh, hailing green cars and using that to help drivers on the Uber network make that transition uh, from gas-powered engines to hybrids and ultimately electric. So we plan to be electric uh, by all electric and zero emissions by 2030 uh, in major U.S., uh, European, and Canadian cities. And by 2040, we hope to be all electric all over the world. But this is a team effort. Uh, we need help and we need the infrastructure that is required to go all electric, especially in the large cities of the world. Yeah, I mean, you make the point here. There is no way you are going to achieve this without support from national governments, from local governments. Is this basically Uber throwing down the gauntlet to these governments and saying, look, we want to help the environment. We want to help people individually, but you're going to have to play ball with us, too. Well, I think that um, uh, climate is a team sport, right? Any benefit that you get from climate essentially accrues to everybody else. Uh, and if you're going to play a team sport, you've got to be uh, make a contribution. Uh, otherwise, you're not part of the team. And I do think that the investments, we need to continue to make investments uh, to make electric cars cheaper. Uh, we especially, I think, need to focus on going electric, not just for individual car ownership, but especially for fleet ownership, where the cars are used so much more often. And one gasoline powered car that goes electric essentially has five times the beneficial effect to the environment than, let's say, a personally owned vehicle. We have made progress with personally owned vehicles, but I do think that we need to make a lot more progress with fleets. And we decided to step up and, de and decide to step up in a big way. You said the onus is on customers here, too. I mean, they'll pay, I believe, a dollar extra more per ride if they're going green. Half of that will go to the driver. There's a supplement, a further one dollar to the driver for, for being green already. At least in the transition phase, do people simply have to wait longer, perhaps, to, to get a car to them if they want to be kinder to the environment? Is that part of the sacrifice? Well, uh, it is. It is. And and we've seen the evidence in Europe that consumers are willing to wait longer. And if consumer demand comes in for green, Uber green, then essentially the drivers will see the incremental demand come in. They will see the incremental earnings opportunity in going hybrid and ultimately going electric. And the fleets will move over. 
if you want to make big moves in the environment, you have to create market economies that incentivize those big moves into electric. And what we're creating with Uber Green is an incentive for users to essentially vote with, with their time. Uh, and we think that as the users vote with their time and go green, the fleet and drivers are going to respond because honestly, the earnings opportunities are going to be higher with electric. Uh, we've seen this work in Europe, uh, and we think it's time to roll this out all around the world. You called it a team sport. You're also teaming up with GM in the US and Canada, with Renault-Nissan in the UK, France, Netherlands and Portugal. Just talk us through some of the, the sort of financial incentives that those companies are saying, look, they're going to they're going to provide here in order to help you achieve this, because this is vitally important, I think, too. Well, the issue that we're facing today is that uh, owning a gasoline powered car or even a hybrid car is more affordable than owning an all electric car. So you need to bridge the gap. And uh, the drivers who drive on Uber, they're doing so to make money. Uh, they, the economics have to work for them. So what we're trying to do is through a combination of our network demand and through a combination of discounts that we have negotiated with uh, Renault and GM essentially help bridge that gap from gasoline power or hybrid to all electric. But we do need governments to step up. Governments also need to be part of the solution. They give tax breaks, et cetera. And we think the combination of private markets, the combination of Uber stepping up, uh, car manufacturers and governments together can make very, very big things happen. You know, there'll be people watching this going, you know, Uber can afford more than $800 million if they really want to be committed to this. And one of the other issues here, perhaps, and you've pointed to it already, it's expensive technology in a weakened economy globally. Only wealthy households that are Uber drivers are even going to be able to consider going electric. And again, this is a it's a great idea, but it's not going to accrue to some of the poorest households around the world. How do you respond to that? Well, I think 800 is the beginning. Remember, we're committing to 800 million between now and 2025. We'll see where we are in 2025 to bridge a gap to 2030. Uh, and ultimately, the investments that we're making now are accruing to wealthy, uh, to the wealthy and uh, to the non-amphor. That is the, the environmental game, which is uh, the investments that you have to make, uh, people who are better off, people who live in uh, large cities, people who are in the West that have a greater energy footprint actually have to be the first to make the sacrifices in order for everyone to benefit. And again, we're stepping up in a way that no other company has in the mobility space. Uh, and we're hoping that others will follow, including the vehicle companies and including governments and the cities in which we operate. And this is such a huge, important point, I think. By 2040, net zero emissions. This is the message from Uber today. If you hit these targets, it's going to mean a, a decade early in hitting Paris climate targets. There's a, a big and bold message there from the company, but also perhaps a bold message to national leadership about how invested we have to be in climate change and doing more to protect the environment. Yeah, and time is our enemy here, right? Yeah. The amount of infrastructure that you have to build, the charging infrastructure, for example, having fast chargers in the middle of the city so that drivers who need to uh, recharge don't lose too much time. Making sure that the charging infrastructure isn't just in the wealthy parts of the neighborhood, 
there are, you know, folks in America take garages for granted, um, but a lot of people don't have garages. So you need the charging infrastructure to be all over uh, the city, including less affluent neighborhoods as well. These are investments that you have to make now because the infrastructure has takes time to develop. And we want to be a positive catalyst in making this happen. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Dara, because I know your pay and exec pay at Uber is um, tied to diversity, inclusion metrics. At what point are we ready to have the conversation where action points and progress on climate change perhaps should also be tied to exec pay? Well, I think it's a it's an interesting idea, uh, and I certainly would not be against it. Um, it's I think that the difficulty around climate change is it's difficult to score a company, right, mm. as far as exactly how you're doing on on climate. So I think you need uh, big, bold action from a few companies who are stepping up. We are one of those. Uh, and as you get the flow of other companies stepping up, I think you'll have standards. Uh, we are going to be very transparent with our own scorecard, et cetera. And as you build a scorecard, uh, I think that scoring on climate could be a way of judging how executives are doing at companies. I certainly wouldn't be against that. I want to move on and talk about how um, Uber's being scored on taking care of its workers, because you're, you're coming under pressure clearly where you are in California, but also around the world to, to do more for your employees. Some of the loudest calls, I think, are saying, look, just make these drivers, these contractors, employees. Dara, what are your own drivers telling you? Do the majority of them want to be employees of Uber? No, they don't. Uh, so the the employee independent contractor system is outdated and was built for the last 200, 300 years of, of work. Our drivers are their own CEOs. They're their own bosses. They make their own hours. They decide when they're going to take vacation, when they're not going to take vacation. They do not want to be employees that have to check in, clock in, and clock out the traditional way. Uh, and, and they love the control that they have. And if they work hard and they do well, they make more. Uh, and they can make the trade-off between earnings and flexibility. Now, what we recognize is that independent work has to get to the next step and has to have the kinds of protections that employees have, um, healthcare protections, accident uh, protections, minimum earnings, uh, and those kinds of protections. So actually what we're proposing uh, is what we call an IC plus model, where you retain the flexibility of work, uh, and at the same time, you get some of the benefits associated with full-time work without the responsibilities and the restrictions of full-time work. Uh, so we put that forward to California voters in uh, Prop 22. 71% of our driver base do not want to be employees. And we don't think going backwards 200, 300 years is the answer. Yeah, it's interesting. You wrote uh, an, an article, an op-ed for The New York Times talking about this third way that gig economy companies should put cash into a fund that can be used for these kind of benefits and protections. But the workers get to choose effectively how they how they can spend the money. I mean, you did the maths and you said in 50 states in, in the United States, you would have contributed $655 million to benefit funds alone. Dara, why can't we get to that point? Well, we need the legal framework to get to that point. We need the law right. to get to that point. Right now, the law is very strict in terms of employment uh, or independent contractor. And 
in a twisted way, the more help you offer independent contractors who are using your system, uh, the more legally uh, you look, at least from the legal system, like an employer. So companies today, based on loss today, are incentivized to do very little for their independent contractors for fear of reprisal in the courts. And what we think should happen is let's change the system clearly gig work, technology-based earnings opportunities, it's a new thing. So let's build laws for the new thing and let's make it better for those uh, for uh, folks who choose gig work so that they get earnings opportunities and they have flexibility as to how they want to use benefits. So the majority of our drivers actually have healthcare already, either through a spouse, a family member, or through some other means. So, for example, they may want to use it to take pay time off. They may want to use it for sick leave, et cetera. Um, what we're proposing is flexibility in the way you work and flexibility in the way that you use benefits that accrue to you. The pushback you've had, I know, is that people have said, look, you can make these contractors, these drivers, employees, and you can still give them flexibility. You can do that, but you choose not to. Your chief economist wrote what I found a pretty interesting article suggesting how that would operate in the real world for a barista at a coffee company like Starbucks and you could just wander off the job and go and make a latte somewhere else um, if you had that kind of flexibility. Do those two things work for a company in practice in your mind? They, they don't. The, the, the point that the critics make is it's perfectly legal for us to employ someone and give them maximum flexi- uh, flexibility, but that's not how the real world, world works. You know, you can't have a barista come and make their own hours, decide to take off during the busiest time, and then on their way home, work at another coffee shop for a couple of hours, whenever, however they want to, and decide to pour lattes, but but not cappuccinos. That, while it may be legal for companies to allow that, it doesn't work economically. Mm-hmm. So what we're proposing is that if if uh gig workers want flexibility to be able to get on an app and earn at any point um then they can't be employees because once someone becomes an employee the company has to essentially take responsibility for their productivity has to set the hours has has to set the terms of employment uh so the two don't get along and what we're trying to do is propose a new way where uh independent workers retain flexibility but they get benefits and again, we need some changes to the law. We need kind of a new way, a third way going forward to achieve that. And we think it's a best of both worlds. The Uber drivers can get jobs elsewhere, right? It's There are plenty of jobs available, although now with Corona, COVID going on, there are less. But two years ago, three years ago, there are plenty of earnings opportunities. They choose to drive on Uber for the freedom. And during this unbelievable economic calamity that we have with COVID, Having flexible earnings opportunities available for folks who need uh, to make money and want to uh, do so in a flexible way is all the more important. And we absolutely think this third way is a better way. That's interesting. If you had the right, the ability to do it for the 15, 20 percent that would like to be an employee, would you make them permanent and let everybody else be flexible if you could do that? Does that work? Yeah, it it doesn't work right now legally because either... uh, either workers have to be employees if they're doing the same work they've got to be employees or independent contractors so it doesn't work i do think that there there's a group of uber uh of drivers who use uber 
who do so on a full-time basis. Now, the because of their experience, because of their expertise, they earn much more on the system than, let's say, the casual driver. So actually, mm. the system works for them. The more they put into the system, the more they get from the system. Uh, but it's something that we would look uh, look to. But there would be a trade-off in flexibility again. If we uh, were allowed to legally employ a set of drivers, we would want them to drive during certain hours. We would want them to drive in certain locations. Uh, and we would need that improvement in productivity, essentially, to pay for benefits and other uh, protections associated with full-time employment. So there's no such thing mm. as a free lunch, right? Uh, and there is a trade-off. And my guess is you would have a subset of, of drivers who use Uber right now, a very, very small subset who would choose to be employees because it does come with restrictions on time and place. But the vast majority of, of drivers would choose to to be independent. And, and they've told us that over and over again. It's a fascinating discussion. I wish we had more time and we don't, but we will continue the conversation. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the um, bold strategy yeah. on... Uh, improving the environment. Dara Khosrowshahi, the CEO We all have to contribute and we're happy to. Thank you. Yes, we do. Thank you. All right, market open, next. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are open for trading this Wednesday. And just take a look at this from September splat to September slurge, surge. Oh dear, I can't get my words out. All the major averages are rallying today after Tuesday's sizable sell-off. Tech, of course, the big focus after its 4% drop. The Nasdaq falling out of correction territory almost as fast as it fell in. Wow, we are currently up almost 2% there. In terms of individual names, shares of luxury goods retailer Tiffany have a hollow ring to them. However, shares are tumbling on fears that its massive $16 billion merger with LVMH may be falling apart. LVMH says it can't complete the deal because of the ongoing threat of U.S. tariffs on French products. Hmm. More on this developing story later in the program. I know what I think is going on. In the meantime, uh, riding high together, Nikola and General Motors shares of the two companies are up again after popping higher on Tuesday. That's after they announced a deal which sees seasoned carmaker GM take an 11% stake in Nikola, the electric and hydrogen vehicle startup. The stake worth some $2 billion. No cash changing hands, though, in exchange for the equity. GM will engineer and produce the hydrogen electric pickup truck designed by Nikola called Badger generating total cost savings and benefits of some $9 billion, according to the two firms. I'm pleased to say Trevor Milton is the founder and executive chairman of Nikola Corporation, and he joins us now from the company's headquarters. Trevor, congratulations on this investment. Investors clearly looking at this as the catalyst to get uh, Nikola vehicles on the road. Why GM? Yeah, it was a uh, it was a pretty a pretty incredible process to come to that point. You know, we had to decide who was the best OEM for us to not only build the Badger, but to help us engineer it and also to help us drive our costs down across our our platforms. And with GM, they have a battery that's now you know sub hundred dollars a kilowatt hour in production, which is probably amongst the cheapest the cheapest most well built battery in the world for the cost. And if we apply that across our board on our other applications, we're going to see a minimum of $4 billion savings for our company just in battery costs alone, not including the fact that they're going to provide the entire factory for our for our pickup truck. They're going to help us engineer, design, and validate our pickup truck. 
So we're coming to market with the most advanced electric pickup truck in the world with probably the, the, the top pickup truck manufacturer in the world. So it's just an incredible story. When? Because this was the big skepticism, and you and I talked about this on this show. When do we get the, the Badger on the road? Are we still looking, what, end 2022? Because that's kind of the ballpark that we were talking about. Or does this bring that time uh, horizon forward? Uh, it'll be sometime in 2022. Um, their, their, their certification process is a lot more strict than ours. So even though it's about the same time period we were originally thinking, there's a lot more work that's going to be done and a lot more strict um, testing and validation done with them during that period as well. So when it comes out, it'll be a whole lot better truck than we could do on our own. And it'll be, uh, it'll be um, um, up to GM's uh, standards, which is pretty incredible. So you said GM supplying the fuel cell technology, except in Europe, just reading through uh, the notes I was taking there. They're going to be doing the production, actually, in the manufacturing. You get the benefits of their scale. What's left for you guys? It sounds like sort of sales and, and PR and the, the design of the body itself. What's left? Well, actually, so what a lot of people may or may not know is Nikola built the Badger from the ground up already. We have, we're going to be unveiling that just in a couple months to the whole world. So we designed the whole vehicle ourselves, right? So all the, the controls, the inverters, the, the drivetrain, the, the, the body, I mean, the interior, everything was designed by Nikola. Now, what we've done with GM is we've said, look, we sat down with both of our teams and we said, what parts can we commonly share right. and what are we each paying for this stuff? So with working with GM's platform on the bottom, like using their batteries and, and uh, some of their drivetrain platform on the bottom, we've been able to reduce that cost a big time. So I would say most of the core IP is all Nikola's and, and all the design, the interiors, the, uh, um, the controls over the air updating, the infotainment system, all that stuff is, is Nikola's, you know, Nikola's IP. And so um, GM's just helping us build it and they're helping us drive down our cost. Yeah, and in the end, Keeping those costs down in this kind of industry, in this specific sector is key. Trevor, I just want to get your view on, on Tesla. Does this say something about Tesla, the fact that they, they actually didn't have to go to a traditional car company and get their manufacture, get their production and, and get those costs down? Is it a timing thing? What, what's the difference here? Yeah, so, um, you know, when Tesla, for, Tesla was the first mover, right? They've been here for 10, you know, 10 plus years, if you think about um, where they came from. And the, they've also borrowed and raised tens of billions of dollars. Mm. That was not our desire. So for Nico, I mean, it, theoretically, anyone can do it if they want to go borrow or raise tens of billions of dollars. Our idea was, how do we get to market faster? How do we get to market with a quality product? How do we get to market to be cost competitive with everybody? And in our idea... That was to work with one of the largest OEMs in the world, like like GM, and we did it. We uh, we we landed GM, which is the which was the best OEM in the world for us, and we just took a different path than Tesla. That we just didn't want all that debt, and we didn't want to have to dilute the shareholders in tens of billions of dollars. Now yeah, they've I, done a great job because valuation is huge, but that was because they were first mover in that industry. So we just uh, we didn't want to be a um, we didn't want to have to try to compete with that. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly honest and reasonable answer, quite frankly. What are your early investors saying? Uh, they're excited. It was a huge <laughs> yeah. deal. I mean, so, I mean, look, this is the savings on this alone are going to be into the billions and billions, probably closer to $10 billion for Nikola. The investors love that. They love the fact that we can use their battery. 
the fuel cell, other technology throughout our different supply chains, drive down our costs. They manufacture it, saves us a billion or two on the factory. Um, you know, years of hiring people for that factory. I mean, these the investors love it because it's uh, it becomes it becomes an asset to the company rather than a liability. And the, the Badger. And so this is a great, this is why the stock performed well. Right. Like everyone was excited. <laughs> it's rare you get both companies that go up, right? So both GM and Nikola both raised, which means that the financial community was very excited about it. Yeah, we're going to be watching this space. Come back and talk to us soon, because I do remember you talking about an electric personal watercraft and a four-wheeled electric off-road utility vehicle, in which case we shall reconvene on those because I want to see the IP put to good use. Trevor, Great to have Let's you with it. us. Sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah. Trevor Milton, founder and executive chairman of Nikola Corporation there. All right, coming up on First Move, the world's newest stock exchange up and running today. The long-term stock exchange says it's, well, it's in for the long term. We'll tell you more next. back to the show. Call it the stock exchange that holds or encourages companies to a higher standard after years in the making. The brand new long-term stock exchange has finally gone live. The LTSE trades all the U.S. exchange listed securities, but the similarities to other exchanges really ends there. LTSE wants listed companies to consider strategies that will strengthen their operations for the long term. For example, like tying exec pay to some of those longer term goals. In line with that aspiration, 80% of LTSE's board are women. Joining us now, Eric Rees, the CEO of LTSE. Eric, huge congratulations. I remember our conversation a year ago. It feels like five years ago. This is 10 years in the making. It's also been decades since we saw one launched. Talk us through this. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this has been a 10-year journey for me since I first wrote about the idea uh, in, in the book, The Lean Startup. And there's there hasn't really been a new option in terms of corporate governance for companies to list since the creation of NASDAQ in like, what, 1972? So I feel like <laughs> the economy has changed enough since then that we could we could have one more option. I mean, I know it took you six years to work out even whether or not this could be done, but this is not about stealing business from the stock exchange or the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. It's you're going to encourage people to make a secondary listing. It's just a different way to think about the long term for companies. Yeah. Stock exchanges have always had this dual role in corporate governance and setting standards as well as in stock trading. Uh, And we really think this is a bit of a throwback idea to the old fashioned idea that stock exchanges should encourage companies to hold themselves to a higher standard uh, instead of a race to the bottom. So, yes, we're not really competitive with the incumbent exchanges. We encourage companies to dual list. We don't affect liquidity or the open and close price. Instead, our listing standards require companies to take that longer term view to align themselves with their long term investors, their employees and their other stakeholders. So talk about the principles. We're talking I mentioned the tying exec pay to longer term goals. So it's avoiding mm-hmm. that short termism in terms of strategy, diversity, another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, sustainability. Uh, and and then there's also this question of how can companies make promises that their employees, the public, their communities that they operate in can trust? Uh, so this is about making sure that all of those stakeholders are represented in corporate decision making and making sure that everyone who has a fiduciary duty to the company understands that that duty extends not quarter to quarter, but over decades and generations. 
How does it work in practice, Eric? Because you want people to come and list with you. Are there companies on the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 that might come to you and you go, look, actually, you know, when I look at the way you operate, I'm not sure I agree with it. You're not signing up. Would you ever do that? That's 100 percent right. This is not for everyone. There are legacy companies out there that need somewhere to list. And that's not our aspiration to have the whole market. This is a mission-based reform. We want companies that genuinely share these values, and it's our job. You can read our regulatory filings. They run to like 400 pages uh, with the SEC. That walks through exactly how we do the evaluation process, how we select uh, which companies are permitted to list and not. One of the innovations involved is what we call principles-based listing standards. So rather than having a one-size-fits-all kind of check-the-box exercise, every company is required to design policies that are responsive to our uh, five principles. You can see the principles and, of course, all the details uh, on our website, LTSC.com. Oh, um, now, so for each of those policies, we then lock it in and enforce that the company really is doing what it said. I'm really now going to put you on the spot because I'm just going to pick two companies that are relatively controversial. Facebook, Exxon, would they be welcome? Uh, well, I'm not allowed to comment on specific companies uh. because the <laughs> process has its own process. But let me just say, that to me, the acid test of a company is if it were to ever be revealed that there was evidence that a company's product was harmful to its customers, to the human beings that it does business with or the societies that they inhabit. The question we got to ask ourselves is, does anyone in that corporation have a fiduciary duty to care or does everyone have an economic incentive to kind of sweep it under the rug and just leave it to next quarter, to next quarter, to next quarter to make it somebody else's problem? Mm-hmm. And if you judge companies by that standard, I think you'll see that some some companies have fallen short. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, quite frankly. Is this going to be a problem, getting companies to list? Could it be a challenge? I hope so. I think if it's too easy, then we haven't done our job. I think this is a test. I I can't say for sure whether companies will list or not. I obviously believe that they will. And I believe that in this next generation of companies, there are some bold leaders who are ready to take this step to say, no, um, our, our corporation can be a force for good in the world. But at the end of the day, you know, this is a decision. This is not, not, it's not in my hands. But if companies are not willing to make these commitments, then can we please have an end of pledges and promises and the lofty rhetoric that they put in their S1s and these other filings? You know, I, I think like if we want to say that we're changing the world for the better, we got we to gotta actually make that real. Yeah, it has to be real. Eric, congratulations. What are you going to do tonight at the end of trade? <laughs> I have no idea. We have to get through the day. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see if we what kind of transaction volume we you know we managed to process today. We're, we're hoping for zero percent. We're the we're the we're the stock exchange with zero percent market share. We're very proud of that. But but not zero not zero transactions. So we'll get to the day and then uh, and hopefully have a chance to exhale. Yeah. Wow. I'm proud of your commitment to this. It's going to be fascinating to to see how it all works. And um, and I know the conversations begin today with these companies. So it's great, Eric. Great to have you with us. Congratulations again. Thank you. Eric Rees, the CEO of the Long Term Stock Exchange, now up and running. All right, a deal to buy Tiffany's was set to be the world's biggest acquisition of a luxury brand. But the deal comes apart at the seams over trade disagreements between France and the United States. And I'll suggest other things too. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. The largest ever deal for a luxury goods company seems to be falling apart. France's LVMH says its planned takeover of New York's Tiffany & Co. 
can't go through. The owner of the luxury brands Louis Vuitton and Bulgari included a trade disagreement with the United States among circumstances it says undermined the sale. Anna Stewart is outside uh, Tiffany's store in London. Anna, nothing to do with COVID and a business collapse, it seems. What other reasons did they cite? <laughs> well, the marriage is off, of course, unless Tiffany can enforce it through the courts. The message from LVMH was very simple. It was succinct. It says that the French government wrote to them, said they needed to delay the deal till next year due to the imposition of US tariffs on French goods next year. And it says, and I quote, that it's just not able to conclude the deal. Now, Tiffany seriously disagrees on a number of counts. First of all, it says it could have asked for a further extension on the deadline. It says LVMH doesn't have to listen to the French government. It's not contractually obliged to do so. It says that LVMH didn't tell them about this letter till a week after the event. And it also says uh, that it's been dragging its feet when it comes to applying for antitrust approvals in various jurisdictions like the EU. All in all, it says LVMH's actions are illegal. It is suing them. And its chairman says that LVMH has unclean hands. Julia? Hmm. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, but not at any price. Just looking at the share price since this deal was announced, LVMH bought this at the highs. At 16 times EBITDA, this was going to be one of the biggest purchases of all time, but it was worth it perhaps at the time. Now, if we were going to be cynical, and I'm not saying necessarily we should be, but what was bought then, the deal signed pre-pandemic is looking very different now. There's no doubt Tiffany is not nearly as valuable a, a company right now. Looking at its results from the last quarter where sales were down over 40%. The luxury sector has been decimated by the pandemic. Lockdowns, global travel, pretty much coming to a standstill. All of these things, there will be some recovery and that's something Tiffany points to. However, it won't be a bounce back. And Alice at Bain told me that uh, luxury personal goods sales won't recover. In fact, they'll be down 25 to 30 percent at the end of this year. And look at those COVID-19 cases rising again in many parts of the world. So if you were feeling cynical, Julia, and certainly one analyst I spoke to at Bernstein is, you could say that, frankly, Tiffany's just not as attractive a proposition post-pandemic. Yes, serious digestion over that breakfast at Tiffany's. Ouch. Anna Stewart, thank you for that in London there. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, as always, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.